1: Welcome to Oh God, What Now?, the podcast that is a legitimate lifestyle choice. I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, what was in and what was left out of the King's speech? What will Sunak's legislative swan song be like? Plus, Keir Starmer is expected to be a statesman on Gaza despite not being Prime Minister yet. What are the challenges for an opposition leader on the cusp of power? And in the extra bit for supporters, a tense moment for Suela Braverman on the issue of rough sleeping. Is the real crime the government's homeless strategy? There was a very, very, very faint laugh (laughs) about the tense pun there. Wince. I'm going to go with
0: wince.
1: Jealousy. Professional jealousy. I get it. I get it. Let's meet the panel. Matt Green is a jealous comedian and Twitter sensation. Hello, Matt. Hello. Donald Trump was in court earlier this week in his New York fraud trial, one of many trials. Um, How did the defendant fare? Um, You'll be surprised to know poorly. Um, he didn't
2: do great. Uh, his main defence seems to be relying on the idea that his financial de- declarations had so-called worthless disclaimers in them which meant that, basically said a big not at the end of every disclaimer uh, or or maybe. Uh, and that's an argument the judge has already declared worthless. Um, the judge has said several times, please stop talking. Uh, he said this is a courtroom not a political rally. Mm. Um, but the, I think the problem is everything is a political rally for Trump these days. He knows that he can get politics out of any think he get political advantage out of looking like he's a victim. He always portrays himself as a victim. I imagine even when he's ordering food, he's like, I love a Big Mac. Do you know when I was president, the Macs were the biggest <laughs> Macs in the world? Everyone said how big the Macs were. They were so big. And now the Macs are so bad. It's so sad. Um, and uh, I'll never be doing that accent again. Don't worry. Uh, but um, but my favourite thing was, the, I, I did read a report on what he said at the trial. And there were a couple of lovely quotes from him, which I think makes sense if you think of him as a five-year-old, essentially, because there was one moment where he talked about Mar-a-Lago and he said... If I want to build something, I built a very big ballroom, a big ballroom that was built by me. It was very large, very beautiful. Lovely. (laughs) Uh, And talking about a golf club, he said, at some point at a very old age, I'll do the most beautiful thing you'll ever see which suggests that there might be a moment at the end of Trump's life where he does something incredible and we're just waiting for that moment.
3: (laughs) I think that's just sinister, to be honest.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What is the most... Yeah,
1: the worry is that the most beautiful thing you ever see is him pressing the nuclear button. I did like the bit where he was asked um, why he hadn't submitted, I think, a return for 2021. He said he was busy running the country and it had to be pointed out to him that he was no longer president. (laughs) Well, not according to him. At that point, well... It's funny, though. I mean, it's not funny. It's awful. Um, the, 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 I think I think that
2: could that sums that whole sentence sums up this the politics
1: at the moment. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> no, it's not. It's awful. it's awful. But, you know, anytime Biden misspeaks, that's like always sort of old and doddery. And then Trump literally just thinks he was president when he wasn't. And people are just like, what are you going to do? Yeah. And he That's said,
2: Donald. And he said to the judge, you know, I can tell the value of a building just by looking at it. That was his. That was one of his defences. That
1: so. would be a good TV show where he just walks <laughs> around and you just point at buildings and he just tells you how much they're worth. Yeah. And if it's got the word Trump on it, it's worth a billion times more. <laughs>
3: it's the worst superhero power.
1: <laughs> Hannah Fern is a columnist and reporter. Hi, Hannah. Hello. The COVID inquiry continues uh, with confirmation this week that Boris Johnson did indeed say let the bodies pile high, even though he had said that he didn't. And Rishi Sunak didn't warn key civil servants about his eat out to help out wheeze. Um, It's still early days.
3: (laughs) More to come. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, how could this get any worse for the government's reputation?
3: I think it's worse for Sunak than it was because... Up until now, the Boris stuff. I'm not entirely surprised to hear that he did use that those form of words. It's uniquely him. It sounds to like him. He
1: COVID into himself yes, on television. Yes, all of and... this
3: nonsense. And the thing about the hairdryer, you remember that? Yeah. This a revelation that he apparently asked scientists whether it was possible to get rid of COVID by blowing a hairdryer up your nose.
2: For someone who's never used a hairdryer as well, <laughs> <laughs> or any That's sort true. of hair styling
1: product.
3: May- maybe we can excuse him. he know <laughs> yeah, what a just has no is. idea what they do. He <laughs> just assumes um, they're like
1: magic amulets.
3: <laughs> but. This is bad for Sunak because it really reveals his absolute ineptitude during the same period, which I think we could have all hinted at before. But he has been trying to uh, portray himself as the voice of reason post-Boris. That's his entire stick as Mm. um, PM. So this demonstrates that he also was absolutely not led by the science during this period. He was driven only by the economics. He launched this Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which we now know directly led to the resurgence of the virus. And he did so without the support and guidance of the emergency committee that the government had established, which is really shocking. But I think it points to an important thing about him, which voters, I think, are now waking up to, which is that he treats the economy as if it's all numbers and not people, but people mm. make the economy and people have this, you know, slightly problematic thing of being human, <laughs> getting viruses themselves, becoming ill, having children. Numbers not get the viruses. <laughs>
1: Numbers are good.
3: <laughs> exactly. I mean, he just behaves as if the money is all, but well, the people control the money. And it, it really shows, I think, his weaknesses as a prime minister that he can't relate to people. So that, I think, will be a problem for him. Well, I noticed some
1: prominent journalists, like broadcast journalists, were going, this is worse than we imagined. And they got told off on Twitter because they were like, Every, we knew, you should have known, and you're a lapdog, and why didn't you mm-hmm. know? But I think it, one, I think they're zhuzhing it up. Like, you want to get people to listen to the news by going, you won't believe this. But also, I think it, it's possible to know that it was bad and still be surprised by, like, how bad still be surprised by certain details. I think I had no faith in Boris Johnson, but the hairdryer thing, I was like, oh, that's worse. Yes,
3: Mm. exactly that. Also with Sunak, I I genuinely, I was working as a senior journalist at the time. I was working as a section editor on a national newspaper. During the early months of the COVID crisis, I genuinely thought that Sunak was a sensible voice compared to some of the other lunatics in Mm. the asylum. I was wrong, it turns out. I think... To assume that everybody is in on it who works in journalism is a kind of level of conspiracy theory that's just not true in this country. 90% of what you see to do with the media and politics is cock up, not conspiracy. That's my starting point for it, having been on the inside of journalism. It's always cock up, it's never conspiracy. And I think we were genuinely surprised.
1: Our returning guest this week is Robert Saunders, a reader in modern British history at Queen Mary University of London, author of Yes to Europe, the 1975 Referendum and 70s Britain, and still one of Twitter's sanest voices. Oh. Welcome back, Robert. Thank you very much. Uh, just Stop Oil Activists smashed the glass of the Roke B Venus this week, uh, a 1640s masterpiece which amateur art historian Esther McVeigh described as a <laughs> painting of the suffragettes <laughs> rather than a painting the suffragettes uh, symbolically slashed several centuries later. Just a Boyle said women didn't get the vote by voting, which is technically true uh, for obvious reasons. And Robert, you tweeted in response, we should worry a lot more about why so many today, especially the young, feel so little hope in electoral politics. Um, now, that's certainly the case with this with sort of nonviolent direct action. Do you think that is a broader problem?
4: I do. And, and I think it really matters. I spend a lot of my time as a historian with cobwebs in my hair thinking about people like the suffragettes or the chartists or reformers, people who put their bodies on the line and their lives on the line in order to win the vote. And they did that because they believed in the power of the vote. They thought that they could use the vote to do all of the other things that they wanted Mm. to do to change the world. And I think it really should worry us that so many deeply idealistic people today look at our electoral system and our party system and our parliamentary politics and see absolutely no hope of change in that form whatsoever. And I think that that really should disturb us because if people lose faith in constitutional methods for change, they will turn to unconstitutional methods and you can pass all the sentencing laws and all the kind of crackdowns that you like, but it won't protect you from that
1: well there's a version of this in in the us where um there's a concern that you know youth turnout for biden will be much lower in 2024 because of a general sort of lack of faith in in anything changing which would end up benefiting donald trump so it's not just people like you said some people perhaps turning to more extreme methods but it's it's a lot of people just thinking well what's the point and and if people on the left say what's the point then people on the right tend to win. Yeah, it becomes self-reinforcing. I think
4: a lot of people in Just Stop Oil say say that an oil executive wants to influence politics outside the electoral process. They have so many ways in which they can do that. They can fund a think tank. They can pay for an all-party group. They can hire members of parliament as consultants they can fund slightly dodgy reports. If they pay enough to a party, they can sit down for dinner and private meetings with the prime minister and the leader of the opposition. If you're a teenager who wants to stop the planet burning, you haven't really got that possibility. Mm. But you're stuck in a kind of loop where you look at electoral politics and think, that's just not going to work for us. But if you step out of electoral politics, then those are the people who are going to prosper.
1: Before we start, a quick update about our live show at the Comedy Store. Tickets are selling fast and Patreon backers can get an exclusive member discount. I'll be joined by Ros, Alex and James O'Brien in London's West End on Wednesday, December the 13th. I love the phrase London's West End. It's <laughs> the best of all the West Ends. <laughs> Search Patreon Ogle What Now to find out how to sign up as a supporter. As well as the discount, you'll get this podcast early and ad-free, plus extra shows and merch. First this week, in the last King's speech before an election, Rishi Sunak's parliamentary priorities were laid out such as they are. It was the longest monarch speech since... 2005, and possibly the thinnest. Sky's Tom Larkin pointed out they had the fewest bills since 2014. Many words, minimal action. Which sounds like a brilliant uh, politics slogan (laughs) (laughs) for Sunak. Labour MP Chris Bryant quipped, this isn't a legislative programme for a year. We could get all this done in a fortnight and then have a general election. Matt, can you imagine if you have been waiting years, nay decades, uh, to become monarch, and this was the first speech that you were given?
2: I, yeah, I do feel slightly sorry for Prince, uh, Prince King Prince Charles. Um, because, <laughs> just to give him his full name. <laughs> his full given name. Um, because he has been waiting decades to be king. And his first prime minister was Liz Truss. And his first king speech is this sort of fag end of a speech where no one really, there's not much to say in it. I, and they always say, they say that the monarch is meant to deliver the speech quite flat without any emotion particularly because they don't want to show any um, sense of uh, you know favouring one side or the other and if that's the case he really understood the assignment because <laughs> our, I don't think I could have heard a person sound more bored if he tried it was extraordinary <laughs> I've mean, watching it it was like he was Trying to be the most boring he'd ever been in his life. I've never heard him have that little animation in his speech. But the
1: problem is, you're not given, unlike in show business, if you're given a thin script, there might be potential for improv. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, there's a strict, I believe, in the Constitution, no improv rule, maybe. I mean, yeah, it would no... be good if he could just throw in the occasional, just like, <laughs> Charles didn't... policy.
2: Yeah, he didn't even do any kind of, uh, or like, Moments which like would be quite nice. Bloody pen. There, moment. Was, oh, there was one. Oh, yeah, man. there was one moment where he he turned a page, and I could definitely feel. I think it was around the oil and gas. Um, expansion, which I think we can all agree is probably not his favourite idea, he sort of turned the page in, I thought, quite an angry way, (laughs) sort of of flipped the page and sort of was a bit... uh, um, But I think that was the limit of how much he could express himself.
1: Um, Well, King Prince Charles uh, had to say, my government's priority is to make the difficult but necessary long-term decisions to change this country for the better, a line which may have been written by Rishi Sunak. Uh, Sunak himself said, this king's speech delivers change, change in our economy, change in our society, change in our communities. Do either of those statements bear any relationship to the actual policies? There are 21, but it feels like fewer.
2: Yeah, I mean, I did feel watching it Mm -hmm. that this government setting out its long term plans for the future is a bit like a mayfly telling you what it's up to next week. (laughs) Like, it's pretty clear that that's not going to be the case, that they're going to get much of this done or even... Basically, it felt like it was a mixture of small short term things that they might get done, which might help a few people might be fine. uh, And then long term things that absolutely will never get done in by them anyway, and possibly they'll get taken up in some other form. I thought the leasehold stuff sounded kind of positive, but also didn't seem like it was going far enough the football regulator that's something the football fans have been calling for for a long time so that was kind of positive there were lots of little things you thought oh, that's not a bad idea are you
1: excited to be free from uh, the scourge of pedicabs well
2: quite because <laughs> you
1: talk of nothing else i know well i do
2: work in leicester square and piccadilly circus a lot doing comedy and they are every i've been uh, I mean, i've never been on a pedicab because i've never liked extreme sports um, <laughs> but but they are yeah they are That they are very annoying pedicabs, they're very loud and they go past playing incredibly loud music when you're trying to do a gig in a venue which hasn't no good sound installation. That's <laughs> happened a few times uh, to me, but yeah. Um, apparently, though, the reason for that is that they—it's um, like rogue pedicabs are an issue. That are like people who like getting charged like hundreds of pounds for travelling a, a short distance, and that is outrageous. No one should be charged a lot of money for a short journey unless you know. You're it does on
1: seem train. though like not. It's not a grand vision no. for the nation. No. Oh, there's lovely detail. Although maybe about feel it. differently if I'd been robbed for hundred pounds. For yeah, a yeah. Uh, there
2: is a little detail about it I loved, which is apparently there was a law from 1869, which is why they couldn't ban them because they are classed currently as stage carriages. What a lovely <laughs> oh, wow. sort of historical. <laughs> thing. They're almost like the last, you know, remnants of a sort of dying breed. That these
1: from stage carriages to pedicabs. <laughs> Hannah. Pedicabs covered. Which policies uh, do you think were conspicuous by their absence? Whether ones you approve of or ones you do not.
3: Well, I agree that the leasehold thing only went so far. It didn't actually get rid of leasehold. It was the compromise that shut some campaigners up while also keeping people with large stakes in property happy. So, for me, nowhere near enough. Um, conspicuous by their absence, low-traffic neighbourhoods. I live in Streatham. If anybody has been following the London news lately, we've got a new low-traffic neighbourhood and it has caused fury. Um, so, to not see that there when it is, it's a live issue in London again right now and Clearly, they, Sunak's been talking about it as if they're pegging their election hopes on this, and yet it's not there. Equally, the tents for people, banning tents for people who are street homeless, again, a massive talking point in the last three weeks. It's not there. I'm not surprised. That's obviously the right thing that it's not there. But again, all the chat has led to nothing. And perhaps the most surprising, Sunak stood up in his conference speech and promised a new future of... Um, a- education to age 18 post a levels we're going to have this mm-hmm. new qualification everybody will study maths to 18 it'll be this dawn of a new era it's not there so if he's not going to deliver it who will because this isn't a labour commitment um
1: maybe the jocks had a word with him and kicked <laughs> this nerd policy out of the case.
3: and the other thing that uh, sunak's been really keen on in fact To be fair to him, not just in the last couple of years, but for as long as we've seen him in government in any position, is AI regulation. And given that we had the big conference uh, last week and his one-to-one with Elon Musk, which was bizarre, strange to see that that doesn't feature at all. So where is his... It's a big kind of I am policy. that this is what I'm about? We're not seeing any of that.
1: Well, one missing bill was the promised ban on conversion therapy. Yeah. So, so is so. that kind of is that his, is he sort of scared of his sort of nuttier backbenchers? There, and Miriam Cates d- is going to kick off.
3: I don't know if convert he's them. scared of them. He needs to have something left there to be part of his. Culture Wars strategy, if, it, if he pushes everything through um, that's against them, what has he got left? I don't know. It's interesting. Nothing, nothing in the Culture war seems to be there.
1: But it's sort of weird because there's useful stuff that he could have done, like mental health reform, which was promised, and uh, things to do with public services, and I don't know, just useful things that might change people's lives. Um, but then also, like you said, the, the LTNs, yeah. which would have been a great little uh, cheeky bit of Culture War action, also dropped. So it's not even like a, a fighty speech.
3: On public services, there was nothing on the seven bins nonsense. So and now we're going to have also, to have seven bins?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Where's the? What about tax? not mentioned?
3: <laughs> but also equally, they've got the Rail Reform Bill going through, but they haven't committed to getting it through this parliament. So it's there mm. to say, oh, here we are, we're going to do rail reform. But the creation of Great British Railways won't happen before SUNAC's out. So will it happen under Starmer? It's not clear yet what their plan is. So all of this stuff on important public services, whether or not you're pro or anti-seven bins, or the bigger stuff around transport post-cancelling uh, HS2, there's there's no clarity. I kept thinking, I was HS2.
1: reading these explainers, and I kept thinking I'd miss one. I was almost like lifting up policies yes. to see yeah. if there was another policy <laughs> underneath. So yeah. Smoking feels like that's the
2: kind of the big one that he wants to really put front and centre. But but Labour seem to be quite pro that. So it's not it's not a dividing line. It's just a... Uh, help smoking
3: idea. feels like the only one that you can attach to the person who was standing at delivering the conference speech mm. that he delivered only a month ago.
1: He really hates the gaspers. That might be the only real legacy of this speech, <laughs> then, because but only because Labour likes it.
3: Yeah, possibly so.
1: Robert, as Prince Charles, uh, the King, was a vocal green campaigner for a very long time. That was mainly what he's famous for, and also not liking buildings he could do the show with Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump says how much they're worth and, Donald, uh, and Prince Charles, King Prince Charles just shakes his head and goes, "Ooh, don't like that Nothing. one. So he can't be happy with the net zero backpedalling. Does this ritual, and of course it is a lot of, it, it, it is one of those things that must seem quite bizarre to people outside the country and many people inside the country. Does it seem especially archaic when we know full well that the monarch dislikes at least one of the policies that he's announcing? <laughs>
4: As opposed to the frosting modernity of the rest of the spectacle.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, does it kind of, it's it's obviously like there's this pretense, it's suspension Hmm. of disbelief and you just go, well, I guess this is stuff the, the monarch is into. It's quite unusual because with the Queen, of course, she'd been Queen for so long, we didn't really know what she thought. Here we know full well on the environment what he thinks.
4: Well, there were moments with the late Queen, weren't there, where we tried to read the runes. There was the time when she arrived dressed as the EU flag, which some people saw as a, <laughs> as a symbol. Um, I think the prize probably goes to Queen Victoria in 1886 when it was fairly clear there was about to be a Liberal government that was going to try to legislate for, to, to restore the Parliament in Dublin. Home rule for Ireland. And Victoria zoomed across to the House and made a speech in which she said that the Union of Ireland was a fundamental law and that she was resolutely opposed to its disturbance and expected them to, to support her. So I, I guess if the choice is between a monarch kind of grinding his molars and reading out what's in front of him, and a monarch who's actively sabotaging <laughs> the programme <laughs> of the elected government, then I, I guess I'd probably go for the first of those. And you know, fundamentally These are terrible policies if you believe in tackling climate change. But the king isn't going to save us from them. And there's a degree of displacement activity there. It's actually our job as the electorate and the demos, if we don't want this to
1: happen, to stop it happening. There was a little bit of a sense, there was a bit of kind of a Romaniac uh, fan fiction a few years ago that the queen was just going to kind of like get up and just like tear the paper (laughs) and just go, no. You know that, that, that somehow the monarch would, would would sort of save us. It would have been tempting, wouldn't it? I mean, all those decades of impeccable statecraft right. just to
4: say one's government is a disaster.
1: <laughs> just total mic drop. It <laughs> um, is the final king's slash queen's speech before an election always thin gruel. Or if you really want to, if they actually had any ideas in their tiny heads, could they could they have done more with this last what year maximum? Well, I think a Queen's speech or a King's speech is always
4: mostly theatre. I mean, I think very few of us would say, oh, the 2013 Queen's speech was a banger. (laughs) Or, you know, most historians couldn't actually tell you what was in the King's speech. Queen's speech is ranked. (laughs) In a given year. That's a mystical we've not yet seen. Like Taylor Swift songs, (laughs) all of them. (laughs) I mean, I do think there are perhaps specific reasons why this one is, is so thin. And one of them is that this isn't actually a government that's, wild about passing legislation through Parliament. It much prefers to govern through executive action. Mm. So what it really likes to do is to pass really quite wide-ranging measures that simply transfer powers to ministers, that ministers can then use to do what they want. So you know, perhaps bigger than most of what was in the King's speech was on Tuesday, the Transport Secretary announced that he would be imposing minimum service levels on transport unions, on ambulance <coughs> workers, and on border staff, which he can do uh, under the powers of an earlier bill. I suspect after this weekend, we might see further restrictions on protests. Mm. So Ella Braveman's going to be able to do most of what she wants to do, using the powers that she already has mm. to rewrite acts that have passed. So this isn't a government that really sees Parliament as where the action is, which is why, you know, in the last session... I think Parliament went home early on more than half of all the sitting days, and it was an unusually low number of sitting days. So I think the action of the next year isn't really going to come from bills going through the House. It's going to come from executive action.
1: Well, you, you um, tweeted something which, which made me think that we often complain that commentators don't talk enough about policy and they, they go straight to sort of political strategy – um, and this is quite a common complaint about why a lot of people actually don't understand, the public don't understand enough about policies because it's all about like, well, how's this going to play in the swing scenes mm. rather than like, what will this do to people's human lives? Um, and you tweeted something like that. But I just wondered in this case, and I feel this about basically everything the government says, is there any, is it, is it time well spent digging into policies which are not going to go through there's so much that's just raised and you just like it's just a vibe.
4: I think it is necessary to do, because firstly, although it's quite fin gruel, there are some lumps in there. There is some media legislation that we've touched on. I would quite like to know in more detail what this is going to mean for things like tech regulation or what it's going to mean for reforms to <coughs> Leverson. But also I think the question of how an issue will play might be different if there was some understanding among the public of what it actually did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the question of how are these oil and gas licenses going to play might be different if there was more understanding of will it actually reduce prices? Will it actually make us more energy independent? Is it actually compatible with our climate goals? And you know, if we take seriously the idea that democracy produces better government, And the question of how something plays and what it does shouldn't be quite as far apart as
1: they seem to be today. Well, the Tories stuck out a a message where they were saying that we had British oil and Starmer was going to have Russian oil. As if, you know, occluding the basic fact that that, that British oil and gas does not just come into Britain and gets out on Britain. It goes out to the market and they have to buy it back. It's much more complicated than just like what we find we keep. And that did seem to be so I did wonder mm. when I saw that. I was like, well, how many people who see this are going to know that this is complete nonsense?
4: Yeah, And I think it is really important that political journalists don't just see themselves as football commentators, that they also actually have an educative role as well to tell the public what it is that those in power are doing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify
1: Now, let's have a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. If you support us on Patreon, you too can submit a question for the panel. This is from Callum Ballard. What petty hobby horse legislation would the panel have snuck into the King's speech? If you need inspiration, I would have abolished clock changes.
3: <laughs> hear, here, kids. Yeah, awful.
1: Um, so, yeah, I'm not a petty. I'm not a petty man. But some people in this room might be. <laughs> um matt hello (laughs) i've got a
2: list uh uh, the two things that immediately sprung to mind just then were number one ban leaf blowers (laughs) i cannot stand leaf blowers they're noisy they're really bad for the environment a lot of them because a lot of them are petrol um Mm. sort of powered and they just belch out black smoke everywhere they can
1: cure covid though
2: Oh right okay if you turn the other way around they're like really big hair (laughs) dryers so they're very powerful that's true i hadn't really thought about that um and the other problem is that they 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 don't seem to do anything most of the time i've just the number of times i saw someone the other day just a guy like gardener just blowing leaves sort of onto a path and then just leaving them, <laughs> and then just think, well, yeah, that's not doing anything, is it? <laughs> Slowly, the leaves are just going to go back onto the onto the grass. Uh, and the other thing that I really, genuinely think we should ban, um, and I think this should be banned from legis- you know, legislatively, um, is every company that you call on the phone should be banned from using the phrase "Your call is important to us" or "We are experiencing unusually high call volumes," mm. unless they can prove with data that both of those statements are true.
1: That it is unusual because because you hear unusually high quite a lot and yeah. it's like is this just normal call volume? These are normal call vo- and you volumes. You don't have enough people. It's
3: not. It's it's just a tactic to make you put the phone down because they always say we're experiencing uh, u- unusual call volumes. Maybe you'd like to contact yeah. us on our. Why website? not look at yes. our
1: website slash go fuck
4: yourself? Yeah. Yeah. absolutely that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you Goodbye. can abolish leaf blowers though because I think under an 1869
1: statute like <laughs> they're dreamers. classed as brooms. That's <laughs> true. <dreams. laughs> <laughs> um, Dana.
3: Okay, so I've said this before for a different question, but I'm just going to hammer it home again. My piece of personal uh, legislation would be this Mm. nobody should be allowed to become a landlord unless they have been a tenant for at least one year of their life. I, I just think that would just sort everything out in life.
1: I like it That would be quite good It's sort of a walk a mile in I thought you were going to five yeah. You
2: could be more brutal Just and nobody's allowed to be a landlord Full stop That, was, that, was slightly that further.
3: would cause yeah. Too yeah. Mi- of I'm, yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm far too dug into the housing yeah, yeah. sector To know that would just destroy everything <laughs> no, But right. I really think Yeah, walk a mile in those shoes Know what it's like To have a landlord That doesn't answer the phone About a mould problem Know what it's like To not be able to get your deposit back Because someone's being vexatious Before you get anywhere near Making a profit off other people's housing
2: I think you would need to add a, an extra little bit to that, that, that that the landlord that you had can't have been a member of your family.
3: Correct, mm. yeah, well, Because I think there's a lot of that yep. sort of, like, oh, my mum was hey, my yeah, landlord. Yeah, You have to yes. have been a proper landlord with a contract with someone you don't know yep. or an organisation you don't know. Living with Yeah, living mold. with some kind of disrepair problem.
1: <laughs> <Or> just, <laughs> failing that, you just have to go around to landlords' houses and sew mould. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Robert, uh, mine is much less high-minded.
4: I would ban mobile phones that go zzz, 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 zzz. <laughs> I'm a reasonably placid person. I, you know, plod around in my slippers and I'm nice to cats. Uh, but there's something <laughs> about that sound that just makes me want to get the hammer out. You don't like the vibrates.
1: So you, you, you want a more of a kind of... You, do you like a chime instead?
4: I think I quite like silence, really. But, uh, you know, if I can st- start one piece at okay. a time, I'll begin <laughs> with a zzz
1: z- noise. <laughs> Oh dear, mindset to zzzz. Z- I was
3: yeah. so mine too. I didn't
1: have one until uh, until Robert mentioned think tanks. And it reminded me the other day that I was uh, watching some think tank ghoul um, on Newsnight and just thinking, why are there so many of these people? Like so many of the ills in our society and in politics, and I think this, this has been, partic- climate denial is the big case of this, but there are so many, are just these fuckers from just sort of the institution of and there was names like the institution of neutral thinking. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: And you know, and it's they're always like they're sort of funded by very similar people. Mm. We all know about the Tufton Street Network, and they continue to appear on um, on the news um, as if they're just like some concerned citizens who have been thinking Mm. about stuff. And it's like it's the motorists, you know, association. A normal um, guys club. Yeah. They're not, again, well, they seem reasonable. Yeah. Common you sense brigade. Yes, yeah, migration concern. I'm just yeah. concerned. Yeah. Uh, and I just think all those people should either not be on television or if they are on television, should have to one, be announced like where, what their political leanings are. Like the fact that despite their name, they are not just like a bunch of concerned citizens. And two, have to have transparent funding. This Uh-oh. isn't my idea.
2: I can't remember who suggested this, but someone suggested on Twitter that people like that should have should be like um, racing car drivers. They should have to have patches sewed into their clothes <laughs> representing their <Yeah>. sponsors. <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you should just be able to see.
1: from, Oh, that's who they're sponsored by. It's Coke Brothers. That's but, who but, they but are. But it seems like you're just allowed. Like you're just allowed to be on sort of Question Time or whatever, and it's not somebody who is well known, even as in the sense that journalists are well known. Mm. It's just somebody, the latest person who works for, like, the IEA or whatever. Mm. And I'm like, oh, oh, on, what, on what basis? Mm. I mean, I'd like to just sort of ban the whole concept of think tanks, but maybe that's, that's for when my regime is more established. <laughs> <laughs> that's year two. That's your, your year two. Five, your five-year plan. Yeah. Here. Now, Labour unrest over Keir Starmer's position on the war in Gaza rolls into yet another week, with frontbencher Imran Hussein resigning in order to be free to call for a ceasefire. Some people argue that Starmer's position is moot on a practical level because he has no power to influence the UK government, let alone the Israelis. Others respond that it's not just a question of principle, it's an indication of how he would act in number 10. We've talked uh, in recent weeks about the specific issue of a ceasefire, but this raises the question of how much it is reasonable to expect from a prime minister in waiting. If Stanley Baldwin famously accused newspaper proprietors of seeking power without responsibility, does an opposition leader headed for victory have responsibility without power? Hannah, it sometimes feels like Starmer is under more scrutiny on this issue than the actual Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. And obviously part of that reason is that Palestine is a major issue for the Labour Party. But is he also being assessed more and more as the next Prime Minister rather than just an opposition leader?
3: I think it's the combination of those together. So, yes, it is about this leader-in-waiting type persona that he's now got to build. Uh, how will he act on the world stage? Is it uh, It's a shadow of what we want to see in the future? Plus, also, um, is he acting as a kind of an effective opposition now? Do we feel like he's becoming the sort of person who can challenge a general election? But it is also about the Labour Party... And what it is, as you hinted at, it's all playing out now. And it's not just about his world stage figure. It's what sort of prime minister could he be? Has he moved sufficiently beyond that? And some see what they want in him now. Some see what they don't want. And there's no real way for him to get beyond that other than to just pick his channel and stick to it in a very sensible, calm way. And that's what he's done. And they, of course there'll be a large faction of the Labour Party support that doesn't like the version of Starmer they're seeing now. But I think his comfort with that discomfort is actually um, stands him in good stead.
1: Matt, hopefully Netanyahu won't be in power for much longer. He's incredibly unpopular for having... Um fucked up. Although people have been saying race. that about Netanyahu for years. I've <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah, I've personally been saying yeah. that. But, but yeah, I mean, things are looking quite bad for him. But, but P.M. Starmer, uh, if that happens, will have to deal with one Israeli Prime Minister or another. So do you think that part of his calculation versus, for example, if this crisis had erupted three years ago, when Labour was basically a decade from, considered like a decade from power, do you think he's aware that whatever he says now might be quoted back to him? by Israel like a year down the line. It's a different different consideration the closer you get. Yes, I think probably that is part
2: of it. Um, I don't know how much influence the British Prime Minister even has on Israel these days, especially the current very right-wing Likud Plus. Really, right-wing other parties. I, I think. I think none. Yeah, I mean, I, almost the opposite. I think almost um, it might be seen as uh, almost a badge of honor to be resisting what the, um, Britain says. I suspect this whole thing is probably much more about trying not to, st- trying to stay on side with the American position, uh, to not be too far away from what Biden is suggesting. Mm. Um, David Lammy's been quite strong in recent days. Um, written an article in The Observer over the weekend urging Israel to stop the violence in the West Bank um, to prevent the siege conditions in Gaza, stressing the international law aspect, stressing that Israel has to be very um, careful about how it targets and things, um, and emphasising also that Labour would work for a two-state solution. So I think they do have quite a strong position on it, which a lot of people, certainly on the right of Israel, and there is a lot of people on the right of Israel, uh, in politics in Israel at the moment um, they would hate that you know so I think uh, in a sense whatever Keir Starmer says I don't think anyone in Israel in that part of the governing party will
1: care well, people who think that Starmer is showing f- sort of undiluted support for Israel should should talk to some of the people who show undiluted sh- support for Israel yeah. and find that they consider this disgracefully wishy-washy
2: yeah I mean it almost I mean the it, the, the, the comparison that's slightly struck me just then is that it's almost a bit like the BBC that whenever anyone asks I I mean this issue is a good example of it whenever people say anything about the BBC it's always like they're incredibly pro-Israel incredibly pro-Palestine or they're pro-Hamas or they're pro-Likud or whatever and it's always somewhere in the middle and yes on any given day there'll be some reports and some people who go one way or the other but in general they're probably they're trying to find an incredibly difficult middle ground whether they're successful or not is you know uh, uh, you know, who knows? But but I think that's probably where Starmer is a little bit at the moment as well.
1: Jeremy Corbyn's main obsession was foreign policy. I think he was far more interested in in that than in domestic policy. Um, so I think, love it or hate it, I suppose you could say that you knew what his foreign policy was, mm. even though Labour's official foreign policy was somewhat a uh, diluted version. Do you understand what Labour's foreign policy philosophy is right now? Like when you look at Starmer, when you look at Lammy, like, do you, do you understand what the, you know, is there a clear agenda, a clear sense of how they would act?
2: I don't know if I'd say it's a very clear sense or a clear agenda. I think David Lammy has made some pronouncements in the last year or so as, for, as shadow foreign secretary. He's said that new ties with the EU would be Labour's top priority. And that's very positive. Obviously, that's before this, the Israel-Palestine um, situation sort of blew up again. Um, he's also been talking a lot about climate justice, about linking up with other people across the world on that global anti-corruption, um, mm. and generally, I think if you could sum up in a sentence, it's trying to trying to rejoin the global community a bit. Um, try to make the UK feel less like a pariah as it has in the last few years and not someone, not a country that's sort of smashing up agreements and going off on its own and just trying to sort of going screw you to its neighbours and friends, trying to be a little bit more, a little bit like I guess Biden did after Trump. And he said, didn't, he said something literally like, you know, we're rejoining the world's stage mm. or something. Um, and I suspect that's what Labour were hoping to do. Now, I think obviously this, the Israel situation has made that much more fraught I think they were obviously everyone would hope that none of this had happened. But I suspect Labour particularly thinking, mm. you know, we would have been able to have a much clearer Europe is our focus. Mm. Then global strategies on climate and, and now obviously
1: all eyes are on there. And that's uh, that's very difficult for them. Well, it's a no win. Whatever, wherever you stand on that, politically, it is a no win. Sure. Um, Robert, Corbynites I see Corbyn's foreign policy positions as sort of the true heart of Labour. Um, but have Labour governments always had a more pragmatic or even sometimes like hawkish foreign policy? You know, going back to, I suppose, Ernest Bevan being a, a key example.
4: Yes, there's always been a more kind of hard nosed version of Labour foreign policy. Labour is integral to the creation of NATO. It's a Labour government that builds the nuclear bomb. Uh, You mentioned Ernest Bevan. There's a famous scene in the Labour Party conference in 1935, when Labour actually had a pacifist leader, George Lansbury, and he's taken down by Bevan, who accuses him of hawking his conscience around the conference and looking for someone to tell him what to do with it. But alongside that, Labour always tends to think quite moralistically about foreign policy. So there's a kind of small c tradition of foreign policy, which says it's about British interests, it's about statecraft, it's about realpolitik. Now, not all conservatives think about foreign policy in that way. It's really hard for Labour to think about foreign policy in that way, because its MPs and its activists in particular really want to see foreign policy as a kind of arena of great moral causes and a place you know, where you, you stand by the powerless. That's always been there. And I think it's... In many ways, that's a really admirable impulse. I would want governments to think about foreign policy in that way, but it does make it much more flammable. So it means that something like Vietnam is much Mm -hmm. harder for the Labour Party than it is for the Conservative Party. Iraq is much harder for Labour, and not just because it's in power. And an issue like this one, where the kind of moral lines are so entangled could almost have been kind of grown in the laboratory, I think, to, to play to Labour's neuroses and difficulties around foreign affairs.
1: Was Wilson's refusal to join Lyndon Johnson's war in Vietnam, was what guided that decision? Because that was often brought up when um, Blair seemed to be going along with Bush. Now, I, I see that as actually that was Blair's own moral crusade, hmm. which was misguided, but it was a lot more than just going... I'll do whatever America does. But, but to put that to one side, it was brought up. Well, it's like, well, we didn't follow America into Vietnam. Was that a case of Wilson being extremely moral because he thought it was a bad war or was it pragmatic?
4: Well, what's interesting there is that since the Iraq war, we say Wilson <clears throat> refused to join the Vietnam War. And that makes him in some ways, popular on the left. At the time, the story is Wilson refuses to condemn the Vietnam War, which makes him rather a villain for the left. Wilson was in a really difficult situation at that point because on the one hand, his party, his activists, much of his country was really strongly opposed to what was happening at Vietnam. But on the other hand, he's coming under colossal pressure from President Johnson to send, he says, even a a troop of bagpipers some (laughs) kind of symbolic support and this is a country on which britain was very dependent economically and diplomatically so wilson walks a kind of tightrope in which he won't support the war he won't send the bagpipers but he also won't condemn it either and that did him tremendous damage at the time Famous, We've been thinking about the Beatles this week with their, their last single. John mm. Lennon sends his MBE back to the palace in 1969 in protest, at, as he puts it, Harold Wilson's support for the Vietnam War. So it's interesting how Iraq has
1: changed the way that we remember
4: mm. what Wilson did on Vietnam.
1: And we missed out on a very good Vietnam War movie about bagpipers. <laughs> ah, there's still time. Platoon. <laughs> Come on. Uh- <laughs> Robert, what's the Labour Party's history with Israel and Zionism?
4: Well, it's interesting that Labour used to be much the more pro-Zionist of the two parties. In fact, if you go right back to the start of the 20th century, before the Balfour Declaration, mm. Labour was calling for a Jewish homeland. Mm. And that's partly because as a working class party, it was in much more living contact with working-class Jews who had arrived in London from the pogroms in Russia and from persecution in other parts of Europe. So there was always that strand within the Labour Party which wanted to stand by Jews as a persecuted people and was sympathetic to Zionism for that reason. And that runs through Cable Street. It runs, of course, through the Holocaust. And then in the post-war period, there are lots of left-wing hopes vested in Israel. Mm. People like Tony Benn are enthusiastic about Israel, partly because of what they see as its economic model. You know, John Landsman spends time on a kibbutz in the 1970s. I think Bevan again talks about how the star of Bethlehem is the star of socialism. So there's this long tradition and that tradition is still there.
1: The, the Labour left was actually more enthusiastic than the Labour right.
4: Yes. And you know, that it's, that's still present in the, this argument that there's often a sense in, in Labour's kind of horrible internal debates about, about anti-Semitism, that the Labour friends of Israel is some kind of outpost of Mossad. It's not. There is a really deep emotional connection here in large parts of the party. But you also get alongside that from the 1970s, a growing criticism of Israel, partly as its politics moves to the right. Mm. You know, it's, it's all Labour governments, pretty much, until the late 1970s. Partly as uh, Israel, the kind of balance of military power in the region shifts, partly as the dire situation of Palestinian refugees becomes more prominent in the West. So what you, you get are kind of two strains in the Labour Party then, which aren't just two separate camps. They're often in the same people. So this is a peculiarly neuralgic issue, I think, for the Labour Party.
1: Hannah, people like Owen Jones talk of complicity in war crimes and blood on Starmer's hands uh, in characteristically understated style. What does complicity mean for an opposition leader? Because it's it's a sort of it's a very potent accusation, but also quite a, a slippery one.
3: I don't have any time for this kind of argument, I must say, for two reasons. First of all, on a political level, yes, when you're the leader of the opposition, as you hinted to at the beginning of this section, it really is a moot point what Starmer is saying on the world stage because it will have so little import on the resolution of this conflict uh, towards peace and and a two-state solution, which is what everybody wants. But it it makes no difference what he says. Um, So... His taking a very clear, careful, diplomatic tone, and I suppose using his years of expertise in the legal profession to choose his words very, very carefully, uh, doesn't make him complicit in any way. It makes him a very sensible um, figure, in my view. I don't. Like that word because it, I think it links to um, another trend that I've seen playing out just among ordinary people on social media, where there seems to be this deep pressure for people to have to have a view on the conflict to post something, whether that's about the plight of um, you know British Jews, whether that's about the Palestinian people, uh, about the, the death, the numbers of deaths we've seen all tragedies but there's this sort of intense pressure to say something and if you don't say Mm. anything then you're on the wrong side of history in some way because you have not spoken your words now whether or not somebody from down the road in you know Manchester, Crewe, London posts something on social media will do nothing to change the course of this uh, and and that's in no way to undermine the power of peaceful protest, and to suggest that we shouldn't be out on the streets sharing political views in marches and other ways of of, of campaigning. But this sense of complicity, if you don't do something or you do something the wrong way, I think is dangerous. It seeps down into ordinary communities. It affects the way we... uh, We engage with each other. It affects how we talk about politics, and I I really dislike it. And so to see him saying that makes me quite angry.
1: Matt, with the resignation of quite a few councillors um, and so on in this front bencher, it's obviously an internal issue for the Labour Party. The polls, though, are not shifting at all. Labour still has a lead of about 20 points. Starmer's personal rating is unchanged. You would not know from looking at public opinion that anything was happening here. Yeah. Does that surprise you or do you feel that actually on on a lot of the time on foreign policy issues that's the way that's the way it is that it's it's much bigger in in sort of elite, so I didn't mean elite in the Matthew Goodwin sense here <laughs> within an elite circles than it is uh for voters who are, you know more concerned about cost of living or whatever
2: yeah I, mm. I i think from the polling as you say it might look like there's not a big issue here. But I think an internal crisis can quickly become an external crisis if the party continues to make noise about it, if you have more resignations. I think the, this resignation, he's not a particularly high profile person. He was he was on the front bench, but not someone I particularly was aware of. Um, he was the shadow minister for the New Deal for Working People, so not sort of one of the you know mm. top um, jobs. And so... I think, yeah, the question is, will more shadow ministers resign or will they? Will more shadow ministers make strong statements, which means that there's an issue of collective responsibility? And I think the other big issue is, um, I mean, Robert mentioned the activists. I think that's a big issue that, you know, Labour activists by their nature will be very plugged into this issue, Mm. or a lot Mm. of them will anyway, Uh, and you've got to get activists out on the street for an election campaign. They they will be the door knockers. they'll be the people sending out the leaflets and and, and getting people to the polls. And I think a lot of those activists will be amongst the people who have the strongest views on this sort of issue and will be wanting to hear something from Starmer um, or Lamy or whoever on this. Um, so I think that could, it could almost be a kind of hidden problem. If which...
1: this, yeah, if this were happening just before an election, if we're much closer to an election, you wonder whether that would deflate enough activists or enough young voters or. Muslim yeah, voters or but
2: I mean the, the problem is. I mean, I read something the other day, um, and who know I suppose that's the problem with this this story is that it's impossible to know <laughs> half the time whether you're reading anything which has got any um, validity to it. But someone who was saying that someone within the Israeli government was saying this is going to go on for months this this we are not gonna have this is not gonna be a quick so, thing it's I going read to be a quick 18 fi-
3: months it could easily be into the election exactly sometime, and so yeah.
2: and I suppose by the time we get to an election it could have been months and months of grinding horribleness um and the it, the, the sort mm-hmm. of need for some action to be taken some gesture to be taken gets bigger and bigger and yeah that I think, in a funny sort of way, if I think if it happened, if the election was now, it'd be fine for Starmer because it wouldn't have had time to kind of right. seep into people's mm. brains about it. But if it's this is in six, nine, ten mm. months' time, it could be really bad. I think.
1: Robert, finally, to sort of return to this point of, of that the expectations are greater because we're expecting Starmer to be prime minister. Um, looking at precedents, nineteen forty-five doesn't really work because it was a surprise and Attlee was in the war cabinet already. Um, So we're looking at Wilson 64 and Blair 97, the classics. Um, Were they also treated like a year or even two years out as inevitable prime ministers? And what did that, did they have to change their behavior accordingly?
4: I think they're regarded as likely prime ministers, although Wilson, of course, hadn't been there very long in 64 Mm, and only just, in fact, crawls across the line. I think Labour tends to be inoculated against the idea that its leaders are inevitable prime ministers (laughs) simply because of its abysmal electoral (laughs) records. Wilson is coming into the election in 64 on the back of three consecutive Labour defeats. Blair is coming in in 1997 on the back of four and in particular 1992 being that searing experience, an election that by all sorts of criteria Labour ought to have one when it loses again. So the kind of classic image of Blair holding the Ming vase and carrying it across the slippery floor, I think really does capture how that team feels. And in that respect, actually, I think Jeremy Corbyn is quite an unusual leader of the opposition, in that Corbyn had a really powerful sense that he spoke for the people, that he spoke for the 99%, and that was to some extent impervious to the evidence of the polls. <laughs> but in a way, that made him a more confident leader of the opposition than... Labour leaders tend to be, because I think most Labour leaders secretly suspect that they don't really speak for the
1: people and they're probably going to lose. And how does an opposition leader sort of prepare for power without seeming sort of arrogant and entitled, because Starmer is doing what I remember Blair doing, which is sort of meeting with foreign leaders, politically sympathetic, you know, just not, it's not a summit, they're just going over, just just having a nice chat. Um, But obviously preparing, but then you don't want to seem like you're taking it for granted, but then you don't want to seem like you're not ready.
4: Yes, you want to look prime ministerial, but you don't want to look entitled. And I suppose that the best example of someone managing that is probably Tony Blair. In, I, think, I think it's in 1995, when he's talking to the Labour Party conference as leader of the opposition, he's giving his keynote speech, and I remember watching it as a nerdish teenager. And in the middle of it, he announced that he had negotiated an agreement with British Telecom that would connect every school in the country to the internet. And it was a fall off your chair moment. I had no idea what the internet was, (laughs) but there was a sense that this guy was already governing the country. It It was already- already, No downside. Yeah, (laughs) already making things better without waiting for the trappings of office. (laughs) And As a piece of theatre, it was Mm. absolutely perfect, but it's very hard to pull it off.
1: So we've reached the end of the show uh, and time to uh, speak quickly about stories that have gone under the radar this week. Um, Hannah.
3: So I'm going to do a very cheeky thing and use this to punt one of my own stories, but I r- interviewed these two fascinating women for the iPaper in the last week who have launched their young entrepreneurs in their early 30s, and they've launched a new website, which is a bit like Glassdoor, you know, that website that um, where you can basically rate your employer. This one is very specifically about uh, family-friendly policies, so maternity packages, um, flexible working, paternity leave, and so on. All of this stuff is very often completely completely opaque so you don't know until you're actually working for a company what the policy would be and it essentially is signing up users to share their company's policies and then it's ranking them all against each other and it's just a way to give power back to women when they're deciding where they want to work where, they're, where they want to get pregnant um, so you can use literally the power of your feet to choose an employer that's going to treat you well I just think it's brilliant and it's called Nugget Savings so go and have a look at it It's up also, and running is it? It's up and running they've got 7,000 employers <laughs> named and shamed and also praised for the good ones on there now but you can you can either sign up and pay to use it to look at it or if you join and give your own company's details they will let you join for free um so cool. yeah have a look at that i wrote about it in the i paper this week
1: uh, matt
2: well reuters have reported that uh, russian president vladimir putin has decided to run in next march's presidential election oh
1: because he's going to face some stiff opposition.
2: In a move that would keep him into power at least until 2030, which would take him way past Stalin's record, which um, I just saw that, and it was just like a, a line on a news channel, and I just thought it's fascinating, isn't it, that he's just been there since... He's been there since 99. He's been there through so much of the... Well, he's been there pre 9-11, he's been through all of that and he's still going and obviously the Ukraine war and, and beyond. And this idea that he's still going to p- probably be there in another five, 10 years time unless,
1: you know, illness or something takes over. I mean, obviously, it's not um, strictly democratic country sure. at the moment. Um, but I do sometimes feel about Netanyahu where it is democratic because he's been in and out of office. Mm. But he's just been, it's just one of those people, it's like, why won't you fuck off. Mm. Like it feels like they've been around for like really? like half i mean literally they have been around for like half my life yeah these is it? same people i'm not saying that that putin would be replaced by some kind of groovy guy <laughs> groovy <laughs> liberal but you know just somebody that wasn't him yeah uh, you know sometimes one just wishes that there was some kind of horse riding incident <laughs> <laughs> that um, caused him to retire early from the earth <laughs> Uh, watch Robert your drinks now after saying that. <laughs> Don't go to a sushi restaurant. I'm not a horse. I wouldn't be responsible. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying. What if, uh, Robert? Well, I always
4: like a good historical story, and there was a lovely story a few days ago about a researcher in Cambridge, who has become the first person in 275 years to read letters that were sent to French sailors during the Seven Years' War, and they didn't arrive either because the sailors were dead or because they'd been captured and they ended up in the Admiralty in London and he's opened them up and they're just the most beautiful letters. They're mothers writing to their sons, mm. they're girls writing to their sweethearts, they're worried about whether they're warm enough, they're talking about you know how they miss them or sometimes rebuking them and so it's, just, it's a nice feel-good story but also I think actually it's quite a, a story of this moment because we're all thinking about war right now and for all kinds of good reasons we often draw a line between soldiers and civilians and soldiers legitimate targets and civilians are not but actually soldiers themselves are generally Mm -hmm. young guys now young women who also have lives stretching out in front of them and people who care about them and that war is a tragedy for them as well Mm -hmm. so it's a lovely story but i think it's also quite a resonant one
1: um, that's very really moving. Mine isn't moving, um, but maybe encouraging. There was a recent New York Times poll which suggested that Trump uh, would win uh, in 2024. And there was lots of fuss about whether this sounded like whether it made sense, like the methodology they'd used, whether polls this far out from election uh, are any good at all. Uh, anyway, the U.S. just had a wave of elections. It's one of those things. They're not midterm. They just love elections in the U.S. Um, and the Democrats retained the governorship of Kentucky, which is very red. They won both houses in the Virginia legislature. They flipped a district in New Jersey that went for Trump by 35 points. Uh, also, abortion rights protections and marijuana legislation uh, passed in Ohio and so on. And so it was really quite promising for both Democrats, for liberals. It showed that abortion rights were still an enormous issue. The MAGA did not do very well, the Republican governor. Glenn Youngkin in uh, Virginia did well because he sort of presents himself as quite reasonable. And so the message to take from that is even though Biden is um, very unpopular, so are the Republicans. Um, and that people generally like the Democrats. And if you actually looked at a poll, generic Democrats. Uh thrashes Trump. And so there are various issues with Biden, who I happen to think has been, you know, uh, like a pretty good president, certainly better than his approval rating suggests. Um, but this is not good news for, for, for Republicans. So I found that quite, um, I found that quite encouraging. And actual election results are always better than polls. And that's the show. Thank you to Hannah Fern. Thank you. Matt Green. Thank you. And our guest, Robert Saunders. Thanks very much. Stick around for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a hearty salute to our supporters. You could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more if you search Oh God, What Now? Patreon to find out how. We'll see you next time.
3: Big shout out from me for your generosity to Oliver Saunders, Stephen and Michael Salmon.
2: Hello, and many thanks from me to Tim Featherston griffin
1: Anushila guhafa Kurter, and Ben Evans. And finally, thanks for your support to Diana Pereira, Rosie Galetsia, and returning like the prodigal son, Joseph Borg. Good to have you back. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Dorian Linsky with Matt Green and Hannah Fern.
2: The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers
1: were Chris Jones, with me, Alex Reese, and assistant production by Adam Wright. Socials by Jess Harpin, art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? is a Podmasters production. <laughs> Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon supporters. Suella Braverman leaned into her coat made of Dalmatian skins reputation with her comments on homelessness this week, defending her plan to remove tents from rough sleepers and fine charities who supplied them, she tweeted, the British people are compassionate, in brackets, not me. (laughs) We will always support those who are genuinely homeless, but we cannot allow our streets to be taken over by rows of tents occupied by people, many of them from abroad, (gasps) living on the streets as a lifestyle choice. The proposed tent ban, as we said, did not make the King's speech, but did remind people of the failure of A, the government's homelessness strategy, and B, uh, Brahman's humanity. Hannah, I don't want to ask you to delve into the Bravhaman mind. What do you think she meant by lifestyle choice?
3: She knows exactly what she's doing. By using that word, she's conflating two genuine issues that exist and turning them into a culture wars type argument. So, yes, there are some people who are very long-term street homeless who have been offered multiple times other opportunities, whether it's social housing or so on, and they struggle to sustain a tenancy for all kinds of reasons that would take forty-five minutes to go into now. But they they evolve things like addiction, lack of social support, past trauma, um, and frankly, having relationships on the street—you know, a, a proper community and network of people that they lack in when they're placed in social housing fifty miles from where they were sleeping. Um, so there are people who are difficult to move for, away from street homelessness. She knows that, and she's abusing that small issue to create this fabrication that people are choosing to just... Camp out for a laugh. These are people with long-term problems that the government hasn't worked out how to tackle. Successfully. So lifestyle
1: choice suggests like oat milk or something,
3: right? Isn't it? Absolutely, <laughs> it, it makes it sound yeah, it makes it sound like glamping. It absolutely, it isn't. This is people who have got, or worse, it makes it sound like it's. Um, do you remember in the nineties, swampy camping out to mm. protest against mm-hmm. road building, like it's a hippie thing, that it's a veganism thing, um, that it's about campaigning or, not, or choosing an alternative way of life. Absolutely not. These are people who are either number one, struggling with long-term chronic street homelessness because they have personal issues that the government and the state have failed to support them with. Or secondly, they're people who, as she says, do come from abroad but have no recourse to public funds. So asylum seekers, refugees who are being treated in an inhumane, despicable way by this government and have no option but to literally sleep in tents in our parks. And that's because of this government's failure to treat people with humanity when they are here in the UK. So her choice of words is very, very intentional, very specific. It does what she wants. It riles up the right, the right part of the right, shall we say. And I I despise it
1: and that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast if you'd like to hear us be rude about sort of at length and I'd like a little bit more i got now every week without ads and a day early then sign up to back us on patreon for as little as three pounds a month you'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast oh god what else every monday morning and some merchandise offers thank you for listening and see you next week